I want you to imagine the darkest, scariest alleyway in your town or city. The alleyway that nobody in the right mind would walk down. You're going to get robbed if you walk down it. I want you to imagine that alleyway. So now imagine that you are inexplicably drawn to it, that you're fascinated by this place, that you're obsessed by it. So much so that every week you spend one whole night there, from sunset to sunup. And you're going to stick around long enough that something is bound to happen. Something bad is going to happen. Meet Albert Newman and James Martin. They're about as different as two people can get. James is a gregarious photographer whose cell phone rings every five minutes. Albert's a firefighter whose words trickle out like slow-moving streams. James is a night owl. Albert rises at dawn. Even their physical appearances are polar opposites. James is built stocky and powerful. Albert has the long, winnowy frame of a basketball center. Despite living in the same house, they don't really hang out together, don't talk with one another. They often communicate through notes. But despite all these differences, these tensions, and the growing strain of living together, these two share a perverse obsession. Tooth Rock. This is the dark alleyway that Albert and James have found themselves drawn to. It's what they have in common. It's been a three-year odyssey, but the route's close to being done. During this time, Albert and James have spent roughly 5% of their life, 60 days total, in this realm of shattered sandstone and wind. That's the equivalent of one workday a week spent carrying back-breaking loads, persevering through dehydration, and existing under the constant threat of being maimed or killed by loose rock. This is what these guys did for fun for the last three years. And I know this may sound a bit melodramatic, but it isn't. This is real. Albert has been struck by falling rock. James almost died when he fell 30 feet after a ledge he was standing on crumbled beneath his weight. The risks are real. And yet these guys, they keep going out there. Reach high, reach high. That's it, Albert, yeah. Solid. Yeah, yeah, come on, come on. Yes. This week, we bring you The Brotherhood, the story of two very different friends fused together by one very big rotting sandstone spire. Come along as we go to a cliff face in northern Arizona. Is obsession enough to hold together a friendship? Follow along as Albert and James's three-year quest to free climb Tooth Rock comes to close. I'm Fitz Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. So Tooth Rock, you've probably never heard of it. It's a massive 1,600-foot spire tucked away in a remote canyon in northern Arizona. It's probably the biggest spire in all of the U.S. It's remained obscure for good reason. Most of the tooth is composed of extremely soft, friable sandstone, the color of rotting flesh. Rockfall is a certainty. You just hope you're not underneath it when it happens. I've been talked into climbing Tooth Rock before. I remember cowering beneath a hall bag while softball-sized stones ricocheted down a cliff face and exploded on my makeshift shield. When I summited, I swore I would never return. I remember saying only a moron would climb this thing twice. Yet I'm back. I'm here to help Albert and James complete their dream of free-climbing Tooth Rock. And they've sworn to me that this time it will be better.
They've promised it to me. Up until this point, all of the routes onto the tooth have involved loose, potentially fatal climbing. While out hiking, Albert stumbled on the exception to the rule, a 700-foot dihedral splitting the western face. He knew immediately he had found a gem and returned with climbing gear to begin what would be a three-and-a-half-year assault. In the process, he got help from several different partners, all of whom took one trip to realize that this wasn't for them. Then Albert talked James into coming out. Together, they cleaned thousands of pounds of loose rock from sloping ledges. They used a crowbar to pry life-threatening flakes from the otherwise flawless crack systems. They pounded in 23 bolts for protection. Every time a possible obstacle appeared, they found an improbable but incredible way to bypass it. It became clear that they had found a classic desert climb. Despite diametrically opposed personalities, they worked well together. It turned out that James and Albert shared a vision. I asked Albert what tooth rock meant to him. You may have to turn your volume up for a second or two to hear what he has to say. Um, to me, it represents freedom, um, remoteness. Uh, it's a goal that I could work on. Um, I'm still not done with the project out there. I could see going out there several more times over the next few years. What What do you think you would be doing if if you if you weren't out there, smoking crack? last three years, Albert and James not only climbed and suffered together, but they lived together in a rickety house on the north side of Flagstaff, known as the Lomali House. They each paid about $225 in rent, a steal by Flagstaff standards. Dirty dishes, tardy power bills, everything is mounted, and they've begun to drive one another crazy. But cheap rent is cheap rent. Each hoped that the other might move out. They waited, and they waited, certain that the other one would eventually fold. It's been going on for months. Up until last week, it didn't look like anything was going to change. But James finally broke down and found a cozy studio three blocks away. Now all that remains in the way of a clean separation is the Tooth Rock route. I'm so ready for this to be done. It will go, it has to, James told me over the phone. I hadn't climbed in months. Albert was probably in the same boat as me, but something in James's voice made me believe. I bought a plane ticket. A 1,400-foot 511 or 512 first free ascent up Tooth Rock with two friends in the midst of their own little Cold War? Why not? and my t-shirt is completely soaked. I'm already thirsty. Out here, water equals climbing. A dry, dusty hike across rolling hills leads to the tooth. 
At the base, a spring pours from the desert innards. It's mid-March, Phoenix has already broken 100 degrees, and the desert is alive with the spring sun. We load up with 10 gallons, 80 pounds of water. We hope it will be enough to carry us through. Then we put our heads down and begin the long slog up the thousand-foot scree ridge to the base of the route. The sun pounds down, in the heat, feet swell in shoes, blisters form, but we keep plodding upward. As we begin roping up, Albert gets that look in his eyes. It's distant. This first pitch has been his nemesis of sorts. He's tried it 20 or 30 times, and he admits that every night he's thought about it. He's been thinking about this for three years. Yes, that's it. Get it. Come on, Albert. Solid, you Albert. Got this. Solid. That's it. Yep, stand on those feet. Yes. He's climbing upward. The rock yeah. steepens. On, the crack Albert. closes Solid, down into Albert. a seam. Solid. Albert punches out onto the face, that's grabs that's a crimp, lunges for a jug, and then again, another. In a few brief seconds, Albert has sped his way through the pitch's first 5.11 crux. Instantaneously, we have momentum. I've drawn the second pitch, the route's technical crux. I jog up 10 feet of easy climbing and then find myself confronted by a hard, bizarre sequence. I clip two rusting pitons, hand jam a flaring crack, lunge for a crimp, and heel hook a rail. It feels like I'll fall off at any second, but somehow, I stay on. There's just enough to get by. I can barely hear James and Albert below me. The crack is too thin to jam my fingers into. I place two gray TCUs and a purple TCU. It's quantity, not quality out here. Day's last light, James launches into the third pitch, another solid 5-11. He charges up a finger layback and throws his wide shoulders into a cavernous off-width, sliding a large cam above him. As he wriggles upward, his ankles bleed as they scrape against the crack. Twenty minutes later, we're rappelling through darkness towards our camp. take infinite pains to make something look effortless. Michelangelo said that. Albert has a habit of posting famous inspirational quotes throughout the Lomeli house. There's some from Michael Jordan, Gotha, and Helen Keller. On the fridge, there's this quote from Michelangelo, scrawled in Albert's tiny script. It's popped into my head while I'm flowing up a slightly overhanging hand crack. This route has the feeling of a masterpiece. Certainly, the time it took for each artist to complete in his particular medium is comparable. The climbing is varied. There are technical balancing moves, long hand cracks, thuggish offwits, and even a 20-foot section of overhanging jugs. On 95% of the route, the rock is flawless Wingate sandstone. Its perfection belies how much effort it took to get this route ready for a free ascent. James and I are swapping leads, pushing the ropes higher before the sun wraps around the formation 
and it becomes too hot to climb. Beneath us, Albert is top-roping the pitches and being belayed by his good friend, Jeff Kennedy, who stumbled out of the darkness last night. As he was catching his breath, Jeff doled out four warm Budweiser's and a flask of single malt. I liked him immediately. Originally, Jeff hadn't been part of the trip, but his inclusion is pretty much guaranteed that Albert and James don't have to talk to one another. Grace with an easygoing temperament and a quick sense of humor, Jeff is a perfect addition. Plus, he hiked in a few more gallons of water, which it looks like we'll need. The abnormally hot March weather is taking its toll. It's sometime around noon, the sun has just descended on us, and the heat radiates off the chocolate-colored stone. The temperature spikes almost immediately. There are just two pitches remaining to the football field. It's a huge sloping terrace that splits the route in half. Above, there's another 700 feet of climbing to the summit, but it's easy. This is the last bit of hard climbing. This route is so close to going free. Above our heads, the corner system pitches down into an aid seam. It's too thin or loose to free climb. To the left, a three-inch wide rail on an otherwise blank slab shoots left for a hundred feet to an arete. I'm careful not to look down at the two thousand feet of air beneath my feet. I can feel my stomach tightening and I steal another nervous gulp from the water jug. I downclimb from the belay and shuffle left. I press my cheek to the rock, purse my lips, and blow sand from the tiny handholds. I study each foothold and slowly ooze my way upward. A fall from here would send me swinging into the corner ten feet below and down to the right. I can feel my heart rate creeping up, my breathing getting shallow, my palms begin to sweat. I clip the bolt. One more hard move, James calls over from the belay. My fingers relax, my breathing slows, my mind tightens down, and I start climbing. My tooth rock will go free. A bottle rocket serves as a makeshift alarm clock. Firecrackers report echoes through the pre-dawn desert. The prior day's strain is settled into our muscles. It's pooled there, like some extra weight we will have to carry upwards. As the sun breaks above the eastern horizon, we begin ascending the fixed ropes tethered 700 feet above us. Thirty minutes later, James and I are roping up. In the hopes of avoiding rockfall, Jeff and Albert will start up twenty minutes later. The last 700 feet follow moderate but intricate climbing. We jump from one side of the ridge to the next, squirm up a 5-8 chimney, tiptoe over to a ledge covered in loose stone, jam up a hand crack, balance across a rotting slab the consistency of fine granulated sugar, and pretty soon there's nothing left to climb. Tooth Rock has gone free. 
Jeff and Albert scramble up behind us. Someone give a shout. Woohoo! Albert, it's been three years. What does it feel like? Three and a half years. Feels great. <laughs> we laugh and chat quietly while ravens circle in updrafts. To the south, the snow-capped San Francisco peaks are barely visible, over a hundred miles away. The Colorado River snakes through the upper stretches of the Grand Canyon, and the sun nears its zenith. Albert scribbles a few notes in the summit register he placed here on a previous ascent. Here's from the summit register, November 5th, 04, uh, when James and Fitz and John Bertram came up. Says Albert, I'm not sure whether to kick your ass or thank you. I'll thank you. What an adventure. P.S. The love was not lost. James and Albert are only a few repels away from being finished with the project that has consumed their thoughts, sapped their bank accounts, and commandeered their free time for the last three years. It's finally over. In the morning, they can go their separate ways, be done with one another. Just like the route beneath their friendship has run its course, a friendship born in sweat, fear, and mutual pain has led them here to the summit of Tooth Rock. It's a fitting end that lends a sense of closure to the moment. Next month, James will likely move out of the Loma Lai house and move into a tiny studio. Albert's been eyeing other projects in the region. The tooth will likely fade back into obscurity for another generation of climbers to rediscover. For a few minutes, though, we all share a powerful summit. It's a solid point of reference where four separate lives, each on their own independent and distinct arc, are joined together, fused together, by a rotting tower of loose stone. For 20 minutes, there are no career goals, no pregnant wives, no dwindling bank accounts, no graduate coursework. There's only laughter and the relief of a shared summit. For a moment, Tooth Rock, the Vermilion Cliffs, they become more than just sandstone or BLM forest land. They become a kingdom. We become a brotherhood. So have another. We begin sliding down the rappels. Jeff and I let Albert and James go on ahead to organize camp while we clean the fixed ropes. Slowly the sun arcs towards afternoon. Shade swallows the west face. Hour and minutes dissolve to the uncalibrated measurement of memory. All the touch solid ground, Albert and James have already separated the thousand feet of rope into two separate piles. What are the two piles for? Well, there's 400 feet of perfectly good rope here, says James. And Albert and I are, well, we're going to come back out here. I want to shoot pics of two chicks climbing this thing. Albert's going to belay. Albert's nodding. He's got a huge smile on his face. Apparently they've been planning while we've been up there cleaning the ropes. Albert scurried across the ledge and is now staring up at another unclimbed crack system 50 feet to the right of the one we just went up. His eyes have that distant look. It looks like he may be talking to himself, but I can't tell for sure. James and I wander over. All three of us look up, staring upward at this horrendous-looking crack system. It's at least 500 feet of off-width. It's a terrible idea by any measure. 
But for a few seconds, we all stare upward like three artists inspecting a blank canvas. We imagine the possibility. photos of the route and more information, please check out our website at www.thedirtbag.libsyn.com. Thanks, and take care.